What's up, guys? I'm Sky. And I'm Kamisha. Welcome to Multiversatility University. M-U. Greetings, everyone, and thank you for joining us again for another episode. We are excited to have Yerko Sepulveda join us on the mic today. With over 15 years of experience in education, Mr. Sepulveda is an experienced, internationally recognized and awarded teacher, teacher trainer, educational consultant, and administrator with a strong balance of teaching, leadership, and research experience that has impacted student and teacher development in 15 countries. He has worked as an ESL, EFL, bilingual Spanish teacher, international instructional coach, and is the former director of teaching and learning at the Technological University of Chile, where he developed programming for over 10,000 students of marginalized backgrounds. This achievement made him the recipient of the Dr. Miguel Alvarez Research Award at the University of Texas in San Antonio in 2019 for his work with historically marginalized students. As a teaching and learning director, he oversaw professional development for over 300 instructors, allowing him to promote 21st century culturally responsive pedagogy. In these 15 years, he has also presented and published his work research in Chile, Argentina, Colombia, Spain, England, and the United States. As an instructional coach for Project Zero at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, he has coached teachers from around the world every semester. He has particularly worked with teachers in the United States, Mexico, Colombia, Argentina, the Dominican Republic, France, Tunisia, England, China, Korea, Japan, and Australia. Mr. Sepulveda holds a bachelor's degree in education, a master of arts in applied linguistics, a master of education in bilingual education and diversity studies, and extensive diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice training. Currently, he is a Spanish teacher and is finishing his PhD where his cons where he concentrated on developing tools to promote multicultural education, cultural sensitivity, and intercultural competence. I personally have gotten the opportunity uh, to work with Yerko in professional learning around uh, being more interculturally competent, and we're getting ready to um, enter into another PD, which I'm very excited about in a couple of weeks. And so, I'm just excited to really hear more about like what that looks like in the classroom for you, particularly in our current school setting, being in a predominantly white institution. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, you know, every time you uh, hear your background or your bio, you're like, oh, geez, I've done a lot of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it seems like it, but then at the same time, it feels like there's there's still so much more to do, right? For sure. Um, so thank you for having me. I, I I I'm super excited about the opportunity of being here today, and and um, yeah, something that wasn't mentioned in my bio that you know I always like to mention when um, I present or talk to people is that uh, my first identifier uh, as an academic and as a person here in the U.S. is that I'm an immigrant. So uh, I also have to reconcile, you know, my 
own, you know, background as a foreigner and what it means to speak English as a second language. Um, and then having like a different upbringing in terms of how the world has developed, you know, coming from South America, colonized, you know, um, from a colonized country. Mm-hmm. Um, and then coming into the U.S. and discovering this whole new world uh, <laughs> and how colonization was different here, too, you mm-hmm. know. And uh, so I usually like to mention that because um, I like to bring that idea that we need to look at the world uh, from a global perspective, not just from the inside, um, you know, of our own realities. Um, because when we learn more about what's going on around, uh, then it's easier to take perspective. So I usually like to mention that. And part of the work I do with teachers around the world is to kind of like talk about that, to look at the, the world as a system that has multiple parts and multiple stakeholders. So thank you for having me. Absolutely. I, um, you mentioned global perspective um, a few moments ago, and um, I think that's interesting from a teacher perspective because oftentimes we want to, we want our students to have this global perspective, but then um, we realize that our own perspective is kind of limited. So yeah. it's how do we, um, I feel like a lot of teachers, me in particular, um, I'm really always trying to gain more knowledge and and expand my perspective so that I can help students have that global perspective. But um, yeah, so that's super interesting. Yeah, you know something that uh, I learned some time ago, um, and it's not my it's not my own thinking. It's, it's something that I borrowed from a fantastic educator, uh, Veronica Voice Mancilla. Um, she's a global educator, uh, widely published. And then she said in a workshop I took with her, she said, you need to think globally and act locally. Mm. And when she said that, I'm like, yes, that's exactly <laughs> what this is about. You know, like mm. you need to be aware of the history of the world, how everything has played out. But at the same time, you need to bring that thinking, that perspective taking into your own reality because as teachers or students or parents or whomever, you are in a specific place and you can reach certain people that nobody else can. So that acting locally, you know, to make the world a better place, it's everyone's responsibility in the context where they are in, right? So uh, I always share that every time, you know, that conversation about global perspective comes in. It's like, mm. yes, think globally. But do not forget to act locally. That's your job. That's why you're there in that particular institution, city, neighborhood, you name it. Yeah, that's interesting because um, it's it's been coming up for me when I think about our, like the stakeholder that we are in this community and how we can uh, connect the students. Again, like what you said, locally. So, for example, in our classroom, and, and thankfully as a grade level, we uh, celebrated Socktober. Uh-huh. So we didn't like deny, you know, the fall celebration or Halloween or take that away from the kids, but it was this connection to, um, you know, there are children just like you who don't have some of the conveniences we have. And so we did sort of like wants and needs and, um, you know, collected socks for a local children's shelter and just continuing to make that connection and everything that we do. And so, like you said, it's not just like humanities or, um, 
new mercy or something, but it's really like service learning and connecting to the spaces around us that are just like right in our own backyard. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So um, when you talk about centering student voices, and I know you do a lot of work with that, and you work with upper school students, but you're also uh, raising (laughs) two elementary school students. So how, you know, how do you kind of go about navigating that? And really, we talk, again, it's something we talk about, similar to global education. We talk about like agency and choice and child directed but how does that really um, come across in the work that you do in the classroom yeah so um absolutely so i think the first entry point for me when you talk about centering student voice um is something that uh you know uh lisa delpit you know has been talking about for decades which is this idea of um we need to stop romanticizing student voice you know, and by that, you know, it's this idea that we need to uh, walk the talk, right? So the talk is, yeah, you know, this is student-centered, you know, learning, and I, I personal, I'm personalizing my, my, you know, classroom, you know, and it's all about the students, and the students are at the center, and you hear it over and over and over, yep. you see it in conferences, <laughs> it's presented to parents, you know, whenever you have back-to-school night. Uh, I mean, it's just all over the place. When you look at all of the educational books that have been published, you know, for the last 10 years, they're all about, you know, student-centered learning, right? But Mm -hmm. then you go to the classroom, any classroom, and then you realize that it's just an ideal that doesn't really take place in many spaces because it's the teacher who continues to have the, the power in the classroom, right? Uh, so the teacher decides what what's to be studied, when it is to be studied, and how it is to be studied, and how you're going to measure that, and how the students are supposed to produce a certain, you know, product, you know, based on that. Uh, and then, you you know, when I see that, I'm like, okay, so where where's the student voice here? You know, um, and then... You know, sometimes you talk to colleagues, you know, and they would tell you, well, you know, so I allow my kids to either do, (laughs) you know, a PowerPoint presentation or they can write a paper or, you know, they can record now that, you know, technology is, you know, uh, so in vogue, you know, like, uh, or they can record like a Loom video for me. And then I'm like, okay, that's great. But still, you decided what the choices were. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So again, where's the student voice? Like by saying, oh, I'm going to share a little bit of my power, you know, and that sharing means that I'm going to give you choices and you get to decide. And we go back to the same question. Where is student voice? So having choice is not the same as having voice. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and I think that we've made progress in different, you know, school settings like today in many spaces, kids actually have choices, which is fantastic. Um, but then, you know, the question is, where are their voices? Right. Uh, how are they showing you as a teacher that they may see the world in a different way and they may want to represent that usable knowledge that they are acquiring and developing in different ways, especially ways you're not aware of. Because we need to remember that we are people from the 20th century trying to educate people from the 21st century. You know, Mm -hmm. we cannot forget that, you know. So even most innovative teachers, you know, we're blindsided because we still are, we belong to a different century. 
<laughs> I mean, it's true. let's just be honest. We belong to, to, you know, I don't know about you, but, you know, I remember that I didn't have internet connection until I was in college. This is like me back in South America, right? I didn't have a phone until I was in college, right? I never had a computer at home. I had to go to the library, you know, at the university, and you have to actually get like a number to have 20 minutes yes. of access because yes. there yes. were a number of computers yeah. for, you know, like all the thousands and thousands of students. So, but then you see these kids who have access to so much information, so much technology, you know, and they may try to represent the world in different ways that we may not know. So I think that the first, the first part, as I said before, is, okay, so we need to stop romanticizing student voice and we need to really start questioning how much power as educators, we are distributing in the classroom. So mm. when you center student voice, what you need to do, what we all need to do is to distribute leadership and to distribute power, right? Mm. Uh, that means that the kids are going to have different responsibilities. That means that they can teach one another when you're not there. And you can actually set the tone and the mood and the environment to actually make that happen. You know, this idea of students as teachers um, in which they teach each other, you know, whatever they are learning. And, uh, and, you know, also knowledge sourcing. You know, student voice is about knowledge sourcing. That means that we need to give them the tools so they can go out in the world and, you know, find knowledge that may not be coming from us. Mm-hmm. And please, let's do that with kids. We want them to do that, right? Absolutely. Because yeah. we only know just a few things. I mean, let's be honest, we're, we're not experts <laughs> in everything. So, yeah. yes, we are valuable, you know, as educators. We know a few things, but there's so much more that we don't know about, right? So this idea of conducting constant, you know, like research, talking to people, you know, finding online, and this idea of research sometimes or knowledge sourcing, I think it gets um, a little bit confused because people think like, yeah, but, you know, like the kids are not going to, they're not able to start reading stuff you know, like when they are in elementary school. And I'm like, uh, yeah, they probably cannot read an academic paper, but they can do (laughs) interviews, you know. They can interview the neighbor. They can interview grandma. They can, you know, so there are ways to actually, you know, do this knowledge sourcing, which is appropriate according to their age level, so they can learn about the perspectives of others. And um, I think this is, you know, people may disagree with me, but I think that we learn the most when we do that knowledge sourcing connected to uh, the lived experiences of others, right? Because, you know, uh, this is not a discrete discipline. Like, there's a difference between, you know, you need to learn your math, right? So, yes, absolutely. You need to multiply. You need to divide. And, you know, like, you you don't need to go outside and actually find how to do it because you have your fantastic teacher who can teach you how to do that, right? So discrete disciplines, you know, they have a place in education too. It's not that we're getting rid of them, Mm -hmm. but we need to complement the discrete disciplines, you know, like they're learning how to write, they're learning how to read, you know, learning specific procedures and operations. We need to complement that with the lived experiences of others because that's what brings, you know, uh, that perspective taking that we're all trying to achieve and at the same time, you know, that's when the student's going to start voicing, you know, their learning and say, I learned about this. I learned about that. I, I had never thought about X, Y, or Z. And this is what I have in my mind now. How can I marry that, you know, with the content that I have in class 
and what I want to become and who I want to become. And, you know, that conversation, you know, uh, is so important that, you know, from the, you know, the very early stages when they are in pre-K all the way to when they are going to graduate from college, you know. And I usually, I, I also teach some students um, at the university level, you know, and that's what I usually tell them, you know, like, you need to start thinking what you want to become and who you want to become. Mm -hmm. The what is easy. You just go back to the discrete disciplines. The who, <laughs> that's way, you know, that's way more thinking, right? For that sure. is more connected to who you are as a citizen, as a citizen of the world, right? So um, I guess that would be my entry discussion point to talk about uh, student voice and centering the student voice. I, when you were talking, I automatic, I was thinking about um, just kind of how we have standards, right? That in within ed education at each grade level that they are required to meet. And I feel like uh, there are um, quite a few educators that um, they, they struggle with walking that line of centering student voice, but still... Uh, attempting to meet these benchmarks or still attempting to uh, stay within these um, these parameters, right, that yeah. we're presented with as educators. And you did um, touch on it a bit where how you said go back to those, those kind of core disciplines, but then um, utilizing student voice even within those core. And I think math was a perfect example because math is one of those things, right? Like <laughs> by the time they leave, they need to know, um, yeah. I'm a first grade teacher, right? So like they have to know how to add and subtract exactly. uh, to a certain extent. <laughs> but at the same time, how do we censor student voice within the learning of adding and subtracting? You know, that's that was good. It was really good. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, standards are, you know, they will always be there and they should always be there. I personally think that we always need some kind of standard because we need to be accountable for what we do in the classroom, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and in some ways, although, I mean, we're not talking here about uh, the, the depth of standards because sometimes mm -hmm. that's a the problem. There's way too much content so you yeah. don't have enough time to cover it, right? right. Yes. Um, <laughs> so that, that is a different conversation. Uh, yeah. But, you know, I, I believe that's, some kind of standards, you know, they are necessary because we need to be accountable for what we do. And at the same time, it also provides the opportunity for people from different spaces that have access to different things to say, you know what, at least when I finish this grade, no matter whether I go to public school or to a private school or I do homeschooling, I'm expected to know certain things, you know, and that I don't think that's a bad thing. You know, For sure. uh, on the contrary, we should have those standards. Now, the problem is, and this is not just here in the U.S., it's everywhere, is that, uh, and, you know, maybe I'm going to take the conversation to a different space, so I'll just <laughs> say it briefly. But, you know, when you think about the history of assessment, right, and, yeah. you know, yeah. the U.S. has been a big, you know, influencer, not in the current terms, but, you know, in the old school, you know, way, a big influencer on assessment policies around the world because of who we are and the number of people we have in this country and the number of universities we have, you know, and all the publishing, you know, and etc. But, you know, when you think about the effect of, you know, the psychometric view of knowledge and how you need to assess that knowledge, what, what created was this heaviness of content yeah. that nobody, like literally nobody can actually... <laughs> nobody. <laughs> yeah, you no, know, like, 
and you know, let me let me just finish with this example. You know, like I'm a Spanish teacher uh, in my current job. You know, it's one of it's one of the jobs I have, but I teach Spanish. And you know, when I see the scope and sequence of the courses, you know, and I'm thinking, why why am I teaching this subjunctive in level three? Like, why? You know, yeah. like the kids are not ready for it. You know, there's a bunch of research that says that, you know, your brain is not ready to learn this particular, you know, structure. <laughs> yeah. And then I'm, I'm an 80 speaker of Spanish. So I'm like, uh, no, like <laughs> you don't need to learn it to be successful. You know, yeah. uh, however, you know, you have to teach it because it's part of the textbook. Right. Or it's part of the standard. So um, I think that there's a lot of revision that needs to happen. What I usually tell teachers when, you know, when I work with teachers and I do teacher training is that you really need to look at your content and consider, you know, when that content is going to appear in the life of the student and with what mm. frequency. That's good. And based on that, then you make a decision on how much time you're going to spend on that particular content on standard. And then you'll realize that, oh, shoot, I need to teach this. However, it's not going to be very frequent in the life of my student, whether academic life or personal life. So, yes, I will still teach it so I can comply with the standard, but I'm not going to put a lot of effort into it because... This other skill or mm -hmm. knowledge or whatever, that's what they really need. And we're going to spend a lot of time doing that. Right. Um, so that that is a good piece of advice. As I usually say, um, it's just just think about that. You know, when it's going to appear in the life of your student in the future and with what frequency. Yeah, I love that you shared that because um, like my personal sort of like strife and struggle in first grade is this feeling like there's we're supposed to accomplish almost all of the things. For some reason, it seems like first grade is if they don't get the things, it's just it's downhill from there. And like they won't be able to um, navigate any other grade level. So that's a lot of pressure for first grade. Yeah. Um, and then when I think of equity and what you're saying is also this, um, you know, like you said, I'm looking at some of the things that are required, like, for example, we were talking about data collection, which I was like, yeah, we do that when we like track the weather or, you know, we're collecting information on each other. But then it had probability as one of our uh, assessments. And I'm like, what? Why? Like mm -hmm. what? What and how and why would we be discussing probability? I mean, I, it can be an introductory thing. But I was like, do these six year olds really need to know? probability yeah. yet because I don't feel like I did that until middle school or high school and so again there is that struggle of looking at these assessments and being like um, this isn't even it's not even equitable like you said you're already asking us to do something that is um, made not impossible but maybe unreasonable and then we're supposed to center and be equitable and coastal responsive in all of that and it is like a pressure cooker Yes, mm -hmm. yes, yes, absolutely. Now, you need to think about, you know, um, I think that as educators, you know, uh, frontline educators, as I usually like to call it, <laughs> uh, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I think that we really need to think about the well-being of our students, um, regardless of all the power, you know, that is, you know, um, taking place in terms of curriculum design and standards and all of that. And uh, we know better. You know, we know our kids. We know better than anybody else about what the kids need in that particular moment and how we have to shift sometimes because, you know, there's a conversation that is more important, you know. Um, 
And uh, we also need to think about that, you know, all of these expectations that we have for what we're supposed to teach and how we're supposed to teach it, it usually comes from, you know, those educational researchers or ministries of education or people uh, who are in power and they are not aware of it. Um, however, we, the ones, you know, working and teaching, you know, those pieces of content or knowledge, whatever, we are actually aware of, you know, um, you know, the restrictions and what we need and what I usually say, you know, when I talk to my friends and, you know, I'm going to give a perspective now as a researcher, when I talk to my friends who uh, do a lot of quantitative research and I say, listen, you can plan the best research project. However, if those kids didn't have breakfast that day, that's a variable that's going to affect. It's true. You know, yeah. I mean, like, so yes, you can have the most beautiful design. However, if the kid came to school after you know like being in a fight with a mom or a dad or you know yep. having a hard situation at home you know uh it's not the same so you know like these kids have lives yeah you know and we need to be aware of that and um and uh we cannot forget that um we are learning and teaching in a society we're not doing it in a lab Mm. Right. Uh, so societal issues, you know, and personal lived experiences need to be considered in the mix when you develop your lessons and when going back to our original topic, when you want to center student voice. Right. And and allowing the kids to actually little by little show you and tell you what they think, what they feel, what they care about. And how that can be represented in different ways that may not be the way you had planned for the class or for the unit or whatever the curriculum or standard said. Um, so now I know that and I know that your audience, you know, maybe from different backgrounds. So I know that in certain spaces, what I'm saying is easier to do that in others. Yeah. Um, that uh, in some other, you know, some people, some teachers have a lot of autonomy. Some others don't. Um, but what we all have is teacher agency. And that is the hope. You know, like we may not have autonomy in the spaces where we work, but we, nobody can take away our agency, which is how we act in the world, how we act in the classroom, and how we, you know, create the spaces for the students to feel empowered to also act in the world. So... Um, so I, I know I, this is because I know you, but I really, um, love the presentation you did on let me tell my story. And uh -huh. I would really love to talk more about that because it's, it's, it's very inspiring to me. And, and it is to me an example of really, um, centering students and not just their voice, but really like their whole identity, kind of like how you started sharing about, um, your background. So just not just that they get to, uh, you know, voice or share, but that they really get to delve deeply into um, themselves and how to to put that out there into the world. Yeah, I, I can share a little bit about that. So um, the project uh, Kamisha is um, referring to is this, um, it's a project. I don't know. It doesn't <laughs> live within, the, this, within a classroom per se. Um, and uh, the way we did it at our school and, you know, still going on uh, is to create space uh, and also develop tools to help students who want to document their lived experiences mm. to affect change. 
that's the whole purpose of you know this project it's not as i said before it's not taking place in a specific classroom but you know uh when the kids are a little older um and um you know they start realizing that hey you know what like there's something going on in my school or you know i keep on hearing this or that or this is my own experience as a student from a marginalized background right whether i'm from an lgbtq plus community or, you know, a student of the global majority, you know, um, or, you know, you name it, any kind of identifier at their intersection, right? Um, so these this kids, you know, all over the country, not just in our school or in our settings, you know, all over the country, these kids are willing to tell their stories. And, and we've seen examples of that, you know, over the years, you know, with different movements in which the students are like, no, enough is enough. We need to talk about this. We need to talk about sexual assault in the classroom. We need to talk about what, it, what you know, it feels to be uh, a student of the global majority in a predominantly white institution, you know. So, uh, and I thought, well, you know, if the kids have this need to voice their, their lived experiences, we should create spaces for them to actually do that. And different schools have, you know, like, personal projects or, you know, research projects they can conduct or elective courses, you know, etc. You name it, you know, every school has a different, you know, way to actually do this. But um, we started talking with uh, my colleague and friend, uh, Rennie Greenfield, who um, is a, um, he's a librarian. Uh, and we said, you know what, we need to, we need to provide tools for these kids and, you know, kind of like start, Giving giving them these tools so they can ask themselves. So what what do I really want to communicate, right? And mm -hmm. when you think about that, it's like, oh, you know what? Um, this is scientific method. So you hmm. know, this is research, right? <laughs> um, nice. So what we did was to basically adapt the scientific method uh, in a way that could be friendly for students, and uh, we developed multiple tools. Um, to uh, help them kind of like think about, well, what's your research question, right? Like, what, what are you interested in finding out, you know? And then from there, we develop different tools, you know, to talk about, okay, so uh, is it just like a personal exploration or would you like to include other participants, talk to other people, right? And then thinking of the kind of question that they have, uh, you know, to introduce to them different kinds kinds of research designs, whether it's narrative inquiry, right? Like just writing fully about the experiences, you know, in a narrative way, or whether you wanted to do a specific case study to study like a particular experience of a certain, you know, person, um, or whether you wanted to do even, you know, like um, grounded theory, which is like you look at the data you have, and then you come up with a theoretical approach, like theory principles that are coming from the lived experiences of the, of the people in that group. So we started that project. Uh, it's going really well. Yes. Uh, we had um, a few examples of students, you know, uh, getting access to those tools, you know, and, and pursuing work. We have some examples. Um, I'm, I'm currently working with uh, one student who ex is exploring the experience of black students at a predominantly white institution in terms of racism and ageism, right? Mm -hmm. uh, which is, you know, like this idea of, oh, you know, like you're too young, you're a kid, you know, which happens a lot. I, I would say yes. most students, most students in the educational system, you know, suffer from ageism in which every single adult you know, would look at him like you don't know anything about the, you know, life because you're just a kid. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was, first of all, 
there you, you see an example of a person, a student, a young mind telling you what they're interested in without you having it as, you know, part of your curriculum or content. Like, mm-hmm. let's, let's just really think about this. What teacher in this country touches on ageism in the classroom? You know, but yeah. here you have this kid saying, I am just sick of everybody <laughs> looking down on me because I'm young. Yep. You know, so that's what I want to explore. So, you know, then we started talking, you know, and then, you know, he collected a group of students and, you know, he's working on this case study about, you know, the experiences of, you know, what's the intersection, what's the interface of racism? Because, you know, all his participants are black kids, but then at the same time, the intersection with ageism. So if you think about it, I'm like, Man, this kid is doing what a professor at any yep. education, you know, uh, college would be doing, saying like, oh, this is such a good, you know, interesting research project. But then this is coming from a young mind. It's not coming from a person with multiple degrees and many years of experiences, right? Yeah. So there you see an example of, you know, allowing these kids to feel empowered to actually pursue knowledge and develop knowledge. And the whole point is to create usable knowledge right right? because the kid itself is developing skills research skills you know um metacognitive skills so that's like personal gain but at the same time you know when you allow the kids to do things like this they are creating usable knowledge that can be you know shared with other schools other students other teachers other researchers so then you say oh look look what's what is going on here and another you know piece that is very important for me is that uh you know when you're a researcher and and as i said before i also do research uh, through the university it's very hard to to have access to the k-12 system uh, for many different reasons, like, you know, like the Institutional Review Board, you know, has to approve that. You need to make sure that you're not harming kids in any way right. uh, because of your right. personal gains or what you want to research about, etc. Uh, so, yes, absolutely. There, you know, those rules should be in place. And that's why it's so hard to have access to research in the K-12 system. But then there's a lot of lived experiences, a lot of inequities, a lot of hardship, you know, that mm. these kids have experiences that nobody is documenting that nobody is talking about, you know, and then there's this general idea of what's going on, but then we shouldn't have a general idea. We should know exactly what's going on. We should know what it feels, you know, to experience, um, you know, um, all this hardship that these kids go through. And let me just give you one example about this, you know, like, one of my kids, um, you know, my, uh, I'm in a biracial marriage. My, My wife is white. I'm Hispanic. Our kids are mixed. And, uh, you know, we are from Chile, so we're not from Mexico. Yes, we're Hispanic, but we're not from Mexico. And, you know, every time you hear Hispanic, for some reason, the implicit bias in this country thinks Mexico, right? Uh, And I love my Mexican folks, but (laughs) I'm not a Mexican, you know? So anyway, so my kid, you know, fourth grader, she told me this year, she said, "Um, Daddy, you know, somebody, one of my classmates asked me if um, I celebrated Halloween. And I said, no, we don't really celebrate Halloween because it's not a big thing in Chile. So it's more of an American thing. Um, So we, I mean, we participate and celebrate it, but we don't celebrate it in, you know, like the way other people do, right? So she said, no, we don't really celebrate it. Like my kids don't, don't, you know, don't go trick-or-treating, for example. Um, and then this kid, 
you know, fourth grader says, oh, so then do you celebrate Dia de los Muertos? Mm. You know? <sighs> so now, of course, the intention of her classmate was not a bad intention, uh, but it shows you how a 10-year-old mm-hmm. already is making assumptions and yep. at the same time offering a free microaggression to my kid who for the rest of her life will have to deal with the fact that when people see her last name, you know, they're going to assume that, you know, she celebrates Cinco de Mayo, Dia de los Muertos, she eats tacos and, you know, burritos and, yeah. you know, we eat tortillas in our house, which is nothing far from the truth because we don't. Yeah. You know, so, uh, you know, all these kids are experiencing this every single day in the classroom, you know, and we don't have documentation of that. And uh, I think that when you center student voice, you you allow the students to activate their superpowers. I don't really like to say, and this is because I'm a linguist, but I don't really like to say that we empower people because, I mean, come on, who are we to be empowering anybody? I mean, yeah. you know, it's like, we don't, I, mean, I, I hate, I always question that. Like, we don't empower people, we don't give voice to people. I mean, it's like, come on, you need to really change your language because that's not what you do. But what you can do is to create spaces so students yeah. feel empowered so their voices can be heard, Right. So if you do that, then students are going to start questioning things, yep. you know. Um, and, and, you know, I was so proud last week. Uh, it was fantastic because I also do that with my kids. You know, we had somebody over and then this person, you know, had, has a, a boy. And then, you know, this boy was playing with my girls. And then dad, my friend, actually, he says to his boy, um, I'm going to change the name. So he says, like, uh, Patrick, say, Patrick, you need to be careful because you're playing with girls. Ah. And I didn't say anything. (laughs) However, (laughs) one of my daughters says, what are you trying to say that we're not strong enough to play with Patrick? And I'm like. You know, I'm like, yes, that's my girl. <laughs> you know, that's my girl. Because we talk, mm-hmm. we talk about that, in, you know, in our house. You know, I'm constantly talking to them. I said, listen, the world is designed for men. And men are going to tell you that you cannot do things. Mm-hmm. And when that happens, you are going to challenge the, that idea. Every single time you need to challenge that idea and you need to show the show the man around that you are capable and sometimes more capable than any other man in front of you. Yep. You know, so uh, having those conversations, you know, are important. And come on, we know this like people of color. We know this. We talk to our kids on what it means to be a person of color in this country. You know, For I sure. also feel that we, we should talk about oppression. We should talk about hardship. We should talk about what skills we need to develop to face this in a world that is designed for others, not yeah. for those from marginalized communities, right? So, and that's when student voice is so powerful because if the student is empowered enough to challenge power, it doesn't matter the place where you're at, that yeah. kid is going to fight for their rights. And that is the most important educational outcome I think we should give an offer to our kids. 
You For know? sure. So maybe you didn't learn how to subtract. Okay, that sucks. You know, you're going to need that in life. <laughs> you know, yes, you're going to need it. And maybe you're going to have to, you know, like sit down later with a tutor or go back to school or whatever. Or use but, a calculator. Right. Or use a calculator. But yeah. you know what? That is so fixable. It's just content that you yep. need to learn, you yep. know. But being empowered to challenge power and, you know, fight for your rights. That is a true educational outcome from the educational system. And we should all fight for that. I, the first thing I thought about when you were telling that story is um, just being a first grade teacher. We, uh, I see on a daily um, the whole like, oh, well, you can't do this because you're a girl. Or you can't do this because you're a boy. Um, for example, I have students that are totally into football, um, mm-hmm. love it. Um, and so they were organizing a football game totally fine um they had picked their players whatever and one of my girls said oh can I play also and one of the little boys looked at her and went um you can be our cheerleader and she said exactly (laughs) and so I watched I did not intervene I hung back for a little bit and she goes well just because usually there are guys that play football that does not mean that I can't play football and I'm in the corner, similar to you. I'm like, yes, because uh-huh. these are things that we we talk about. Just because this is what you usually see does not mean that those are the only people that do this particular thing. And they're just like, well, girls are cheerleaders. I'm like, actually, no, anybody can be a cheerleader. Exactly. Um, and, or anybody can be a football player. And then I had a student who plays with an outside team. He goes, actually, um, our quarterback is a girl. He was like, so anybody can play <laughs> football. And I was like, exactly. So you're right. It's it's real, it's those moments, right, of being able to um, advocate for yourself is those moments in bringing those shared experiences, bringing those shared experiences that one student who knows that girls can play football because he sees it every afternoon when he goes to practice. Right. So it's, it's a matter of um, having those conversations, especially at this level, right? So they are learning being six and seven, they're learning to advocate for themselves. They're learning to Mm -hmm. um, shift their thinking. And of course, it's going to take many practices, many, um, you know, that constant teaching, that constant space. Um, And then, and then you have that piece where you're fighting what's happening at home kind of situation. But um, it's still, it's the, it's, it's, I look at it as groundwork. We talk about it all the time. Um, I had a friend that was like, well, why does this friend have uh, colorful nails? It was a boy. Um, mm-hmm. And the girl was like, well, why does this friend have colorful nails? And it's like calling him a girl and all of those things. And he, so he was, he was having some issues navigating that. And we had many conversations and then something clicked for him. And so the, the little girl like did it again. And he goes, well, it's just nail polish. Anybody can wear it. And I was like, yes. He's yeah. like, I like colors. I enjoy colors. So I decided to paint my nails. It's fine. And so it's it's moments like that that I feel like kind of lay foundation as they get older, as they start to share um, their experiences or you or even um, investigate right their shared experiences. Um, I think it's those moments of laying foundation. And you're right. Like, yeah, you, you may not be able to 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 do nine minus five, but you can say anybody can play football when you leave here. You can say anybody can have painted nails because it's just color. 
when you leave here and so that's yeah i completely agree for sure yeah and and you know and we can actually do that in the classroom while we're teaching our content yep you know absolutely. So it's not it's not something that is separate and i feel like that's that's the space where we need to learn how to navigate the development of life skills with the content that we're teaching right yes uh because it's not separate things it's not that you know for one hour we're going to do just this and then we're going to have a conversation during school meeting or during morning meeting or yeah. you know advisory or whatever and you know that is that is a, a space a space of growth for all of us as educators for sure i think you know like um um you know wh whenever you think about how to help these 21st century kids to be prepared for an unknown and complex world is by inserting these competencies, you know, and skills within the content rather than separating it, right? So if you're teaching the French Revolution or if you're teaching Spanish or math or whatever, um, I think that an important skill that needs to be developed is, you know, reconciling tensions and dilemmas within that discipline and how that takes place, you know, in society, right? Uh, so you can totally talk about math and at the same time talk about, you know, representation, for example. Yep. You know, yeah. I mean, you can do that. Like, it's not difficult to actually do and it's not difficult to find uh, examples. And I think, you know, when you do that, at the same time, you allow the students to uh, reconcile those diverse perspectives, you know, and interests, whether in local settings or in global settings. Uh, and that will help them to adapt you know, and, and, and learn how to handle tensions and dilemmas, you know, and, you know, explore balancing equity, you know, and freedom and then autonomy and community and, you know, uh, efficiency and, you know, democratic processes. So you can bring all of that, but you need to be intentional about it. You know, it doesn't just happen. You know, I think it's part of the design process whenever we design classes with, you know, for the students. And, you know, I think that that is a big one for me, at least. Whenever I prepare a class, I like to prepare my class designing it with my students rather than for my students, mm. you know. Mm. So I, us I usually have these spaces where we sit down and we say, like, OK, so this is kind of like the unit we need to go over, you know, and then I involve them into the decision process in terms of some of the content we're exploring, some of the, you know, multiple means of representation to actually achieve that. Um, and... And also, we need to fight against um, the standard, which is that the kids want the teacher to tell them what to do and how to do it, you know? So I usually tell my kids, these are all high schoolers, and when, whenever they start the question, so, Profe Yerko, they call me Profe. Profe Yerko, what do you want me to do here? And I'm like, I don't want you to do anything. You know, like, you tell me what you want to do. I don't want you to do anything. What are you talking about? You know, or when they say, Prof. Yerko, what do you want? And I'm like, oh, I want to be at home watching a movie. <laughs> actually, I'm here. So you tell me what you want to do with this. Uh, you know, so uh, a little by little, you know, we need to start changing that mindset because that's what the kids know about education, that you need to go and you need to learn and you need to do exactly what the teacher says you need to do yep. to be successful. And going back to this idea of, 20th century people preparing 21st century people. That's what the parents know too. Yep. So that's the message yeah. they get at home too. 
you know, that you go, you sit down, you take notes, you learn, you memorize, you go back, you take a test. Because, you know, that's what we experienced, all of us. Yep. You know, anyone who was in the classroom as a student in the 20th century, that's what we experienced. So, and that's what we're passing on to the students as well. So, uh, you know, re I don't think that sometimes I, I hear people talking about uh, reimagining education. I don't like the re because, you know, I don't think that we need to kind of like look at the past. I think we just need to look at the future, mm. you know. So to me, it's all about imagining new ways of learning. Uh, rather than reimagining how to do what we did in the past, you know, in a better way or a different way. But again, that's my me being picky because I'm a linguist. But <laughs> wow, that just—I I kind of was going to ask you about that. Like, what do you think is next? But I think I would rather ask you, um, who would you be if you could be anything? You're so if you could just like create your own sort of like pathway for the future what is it that you would do uh you mean for me or as an educator for you just because you i mean again like you said reading through your bio and even though i personally know you i was just like okay he's he's done a lot of things <laughs> mm -hmm. indeed and oh, i goodness. just was like you know it makes me think my like i just think your possibilities are endless but, you know, what, who would you be if you could, you know, create anything for yourself? And like you said, forward thinking and being yeah. thinking about the 21st century. You know, that that is wow. That's a deep question, Kamisha. Because <laughs> uh, <laughs> so you're more than an educator. You know, I know. Like you're just, you're, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I would say that um, I think it has taken me a long, 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 long time. So many, 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 many years to reconcile who I am with uh, what and who I want to become. And uh, because I have moved countries mm -hmm. um, and I have had experiences being a student, you know, back home in my country and then here in graduate school, etc. I feel like today... I am finally allowing myself to reinvent myself over and over and over and over. Mm -hmm. And I'm very proud of that, but it's not an easy thing to do, you know. Uh, you know, when, when I think back, you know, uh, when I was a teenager, kind of like deciding what I wanted to do, you know, and I went to college and I got a teaching degree. Uh, and I thought I was going to be an ESL teacher for the rest of my life. You know, like, okay, yeah, I'm going to teach English back in my country, you know. But then after that, I'm like, ooh, I like this this idea of speaking other languages and traveling, you know, whatever. And I, I would have never imagined, to be honest with you, that because I learned English, then, you know, one day I would meet this, you know, beautiful, you know, American mm -hmm. girl. <laughs> and then, you know, marry her and then moving to this country, you know, like I would have never imagined that. But then... You know, I came here and then I realized that um, I was different because when I was back home, you know, I was just a regular Chilean person, right? Like everybody looked the same. Um, and then I, I, I came here and I realized that imposed identities um, were given to me, you know, like this mm. is, you know, like people will look at me like, okay, he's brown, like. 
never, never before I moved to this country, I would have described my skin as brown because everybody else was brown. Right? <laughs> so I'm like, oh, okay. So then I came here and I'm like, oh, there's actually like, like a race thing going on here. That was like, you know, and again, I'm giving you, you know, the perspective of an immigrant because I know that's not the same experience for people who actually grew up here and realize what race means. Mm-hmm. Uh, being here in this country, right? Yeah. Uh, which is, you know, like the experience my kids are having because they live here in this country. But, you know, I learned about it as an adult. So I came here and I'm like, oh, now I need to, I need to like work through this thing of, you know, like all the discrimination and microaggressions, you know, and imposed identities that people are giving me. So it was like starting all over again, right? And then I came here and I'm like, oh, shoot, my degree is on teaching English as a foreign language. And I moved to a country where English is a native language. <laughs> so it's like, um, I don't think your degree works anymore because, you know, uh, you know, everybody here speaks English. So it was like reinventing myself, you know. And then, you know, I got into linguistics. And then I did my master's in bilingual ed and, you know, diversity studies, you know, and then I did another one in applied linguistics, you know, and I thought, okay, it seems to me and the messages that I'm getting is that I need to, you know, use my native language, you know, as a skill to pursue a career, which is being a Spanish teacher, right, or Spanish professor. And then I started doing that uh, and I still do a little bit of it. Um, But then in the process, I'm like, oh, you know what? No. No, like I have so much more to say than to teach people how to say hola, como estas, you know, Uh, I I can do more than that, you know, and and I'm so thankful for my current job, my my current jobs, because it's not just one, that I have the possibility, you know, to work with teachers around the world implementing systems thinking and, you know, makers and learning uh, as an instructional coach and also in my current school. You know, yes, I teach my courses in Spanish, but one of them is on language, image and power. So it's a seminar about exploring language and images and how power is embedded, you know, in codes and signs uh, historically. Right. And then I also get to teach a class for heritage speakers who are kids who actually speak Spanish at home. And, you know, they have a connection with Latin America or Spain, you know, and um, they need a different kind of approach to explore what it means to have an identity as a heritage speaker of Spanish, right? So mm-hmm. I'm so thankful for that because I really get to do what I think we should all be doing, which is no matter what you do, no matter what discipline you're in, we should be preparing people to face the challenges of the world, you know? So, uh, That was like the long answer to your question, Kamisha, Mm -hmm. but I feel like if I could continue redesigning uh, who I want to be when I grow up, that's what I usually tell the kids, you know, (laughs) when I talk to all these kids super stressed about going to college, I'm like, hey, don't worry. I still haven't figured out who I want to be when, when I grow up. And they look at me like. Fierco, come on, you're always 40. You're almost 40, you know. So, <laughs> and I'm like, yes, figure it probably, out. Figure it out. I probably right. feel the same when I'm 80, yeah. you know, yeah. which is this pursuit of um, a beautiful world. And to me, a beautiful world means an equitable space, an inclusive space, a happy place where people, you know, are not, you know, suffering hardships, uh, where everyone feels welcome. 
And uh, I think I will continue doing that, you know, like to continue redesigning what I do. Uh, I don't know if I have like a specific, you know, like I want to be a consultant or I want to come up with a company or no, I think that uh, I stand by this idea that um, you're placed, you know, in spaces because you and only you can reach people in those spaces And it's your job to make sure that uh, those people uh, feel transformed in X, Y, or C way uh, because they interacted with you. I think that is what we leave to the world, you know, and um, that's how we make it better. So I will continue reinventing myself for Mm -hmm. sure. Um, I have done it so many times. Uh, I know that my title, na- my title now is being a Spanish teacher, but if you ask me, um, if you visit my class, you would see that I'm nothing farther than being a regular Spanish teacher in terms <laughs> of what I teach. Um, and the 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 kids value that, you know, like the when when they tell me, you know, like how they feel about the classes or when I get the feedback at the end of the semester, um, I nobody tells me. Thank you for teaching me the subjunctive or thank you for teaching me the simple yep. past tense in Spanish. Yep. Uh, <laughs> they usually say, Prof. Yerko, thank you for, uh, for helping me see the world in a different way. Thank you for your passion for social justice. Thank you for, you know, just, um, you know, distributing leadership in the classroom. And, uh, and that makes my day. Every single day when I hear that, you know, that makes my day. Um, and that's my answer, I think, you know, like when you hear that the kids um, are grateful for seeing the world with new eyes, yep. uh, I think that fulfills my, my educator heart. That's good. Well, thank you so much. That yes. Was, um, yeah. I mean, I knew it was going to be amazing, but amazing. <laughs> Um, but yeah, that, that leaves me a lot to process as well. And my hope that I, I too transform the spaces that I um, enter into. Absolutely. Same. Thank you so much for your expertise, for all the work that you do, and for joining us on this episode. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. This has been fantastic. I mean, uh, we are talkers, so you know, whenever <laughs> they invite you to talk, it's like, oh yeah, let's talk. Absolutely, let's talk. I mean, that's yeah, you know, you know, conversation is so important and is such a powerful way to also decolonize some of our practices in which mm. we're in so much silence. Mm-hmm. You know, because when when we think about our ancestors and culture as it is, uh, culture is you know driven through conversation and storytelling, for sure. You know, so thank you for uh, both of you for also having the space for you know having you know these conversations and learning about the lived experiences of others and and yeah, thank you for having me for sure. Absolutely. Thank you, everyone, again, for joining us. Thank you for supporting us. Hope you gathered some great notes from this episode. As always, I'm Kamisha. I'm Sky. School is in session.